X-Ray. It's the Beervana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How you doing? I guess I'm doing okay for a gray January afternoon. A beautiful, typical Oregon winter day. Yeah, it's true. It is, <laughs> it is what it is. It's been a slow, as we record this, it's been a slow news week, so, you know. That's right. Not Nothing. much happened. Nothing going on that usual early January slow time. Yeah. You know, nothing to keep you interested in the news. <laughs> just, a, just one of those sleepy transitions from one president to the next. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. There's a slight, <laughs> slight interest in that. Yeah. All the pomp and circumstance as transitions happen in a functioning democracy. <laughs> Otherwise, the world's kind of normal, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, COVID. Trump, sedition, insurrection, those kinds of yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Luckily, this is a beer podcast. We don't have to get too much into that. It's true. I was on beer Twitter uh, yesterday, I think, and I have two Twitter accounts. I have a beer Twitter and a politics Twitter account. And I was on beer Twitter, and I, and, and I was scrolling through for about a minute before I realized that I was on beer Twitter and not politics Twitter. It's, oh. it's uh, you know, it's just, this is dominating everything, so... Um, I don't know if anybody will listen to this podcast until uh, well, it won't be out weeks from now. Yeah, it won't be out for a few days. So you know, that's all right. Uh, I will say that um, uh, speaking of of news, it actually came out today as we record. So we're recording on a Friday, and uh, Biden just announced his big economic uh, COVID sort of relief plan last night. I guess it was right. It was one point uh, nine trillion dollar plan. One point nine trillion dollar plan. Uh, and uh, big expansion, big big funding for COVID relief, for vaccine distribution, unemployment insurance, uh, on and on. I think it's fantastic. Um, just put my plug in there. I think actually, in fact, you'll see that economists kind of across the spectrum are pretty positive about this because one of the takeaways from the big financial crisis was we did a massive bailout bill and almost everyone agrees it wasn't enough um, that we kind of ended it, put it, put a cap on it too soon and too low. And you can, and the U S is able to borrow money practically for free right now. So, um, it makes a lot of sense. And then the other side of this, and this is relevant to the beer world, which is there's still, I think a huge underlying tsunami that's coming, uh, economically because states and municipalities are about to just, uh, cut spending radically and people have run out of benefits and, uh, the jobs aren't coming back as fast as we thought. And, uh, so I think it's it's uh, impressive, and I hope it gets passed. So there you go. There's my there's my editorial. There's my little op-ed at the top of the show. <laughs> I like it, and I agree. And I, I I'm guessing all our friends in the beer industry are cheering you on. So uh, go go, Joe. Yeah, I think to to, to put a optimistic end uh, end cap on this, is I think it's quite likely we'll see a very robust rebound if we can get vaccines out and the. And uh, the virus under control, but it's really important to fill in that gap in between so that the damage, you know, the, the hole we're digging out of isn't near, isn't as deep. So, but you know what? I realize as I look here at the script, I haven't even introduced you. So uh, you're Jeff Allworth. You're the author of several books, including The Beer Bible, Secrets of Master Brewers, and The Widmer Way. I am indeed. And you are Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at our Oregon State University. Go Beats. Which is a little, I suppose it's slightly informative to understand that as I sit around <laughs> talking about economics on the top of a beer podcast. Uh, okay. Uh, I was trying to find a subject that wasn't as um, depressing as uh, armed insurrection on our nation's capital. So, you know. 
Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, we're all armchair economics, uh, economists now. And so it's nice to hear actual economists uh, and nice to have one on. We're going to do a little bit more of that, maybe uh, appeal to your, your uh, field of expertise. But um, I think it's, uh, it's important to recognize that we, all this stuff exists in a larger context. And so uh, it's a great place to start. Yeah, today will actually be a podcast that's a lot of a lot of beeronomics today, and and uh, talking about how businesses are are trying to negotiate this new landscape or the shifting sands, perhaps. Um, so uh, it's not completely uh, out of bounds that I should talk about this stuff, but uh, but yeah, so maybe I should just go ahead and introduce what we're going to do today, uh, which Let's is. Do it. To welcome a guest to discuss a new business model that has uh, that developed as a reaction to the COVID pandemic, Casey Armstrong is behind Road Beers, a direct consumer delivery service with a growing slate of brewery partners. We'll slingshot off that discussion to expand our inquiry and give it the beeronomics treatment <laughs> we've all been waiting for. Trademark. That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> beeronomics trademark. Uh, in what ways will the pandemic permanently alter the way we do things? Uh, what will snap back to the way things were before the interruption uh, and what won't? We'll look at the beer industry, of course, but also consider the wider economy. And we'll do all that soon. But before we do, of course, we have to do the news. For this first show of 2021, we'd like to stick uh, with complimentary local news items. If you don't live in Portland, consider these items interesting trends for the direction of beer, and they set up our discussion uh, and interview with Casey. And so the first item, uh, these are both kind of related items. Uh, the first yeah, one is and that- by, yeah, And if Portland is, a, Portland is like the canary in the coal mine for all of craft beer, so- these are relevant to everybody around the world. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Breakside Brewing annou Brewery announced a startling slate of new moves for 2021. After taking a big hit to its draft business in 2020, the brewery is doubling down on draft by opening three new retail outlets in Portland this year. One in Beaverton, one in Lake Oswego, and in the outer East Portland on Southeast 82nd. These will join three current Breakside locations in Woodlawn in Northeast Portland, the production facility in Milwaukee, uh, just south of Portland, and in Slabtown, just north of downtown. So they will be dotted all around the Portland metro area. Let's see. So we're talking, uh, how, how many did you say? There's going to be three more to join three? So there's going to be six? That's right. That three plus three, let's see. Oh, man, I got to do two hands. Six, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, that's, that's interesting. Uh, they were, I think you told me that they were, what, like 75%? Uh, draft before the pandemic? Yeah, I think 70 is the number I remember. 70%, yeah. so, something like that, but, but heavily yeah. draft. And so they've had to pivot hard to packaging as much as they can. But I imagine that um, uh, getting closer to consumer helps not only for draft, but also for uh, packaging too. I imagine package sales will go out of those locations as well. Yeah, I think that's going to, it should definitely be the plan, I would imagine. That's interesting. Yeah, that's that, and that's a, it'll be interesting to talk to um, uh, Casey today about his business model and, and, uh, and compare and contrast these different approaches. Okay, so similarly, Upright Brewing, the incredibly accomplished but low-profile operation located in the basement of a building in a gritty stretch of Northeast Broadway, uh, plans to open two new sites as well. The first will be in their current left bank building, but up above ground. 
and a second in an outer region of Northeast Portland on 71st and Prescott. We are especially happy to note that the latter site will have a special emphasis on cask ale. Ooh. <laughs> I was pretty sure you hadn't read to the end of that. <laughs> no, I hadn't gone all the way down there. And you note in parentheses <laughs> that owner Alex Ganum uh, joined us on pod 73, if you're interested in learning more about Upright. That's right. Uh, and, and and it's especially relevant because on that pod, he, uh, he brought us some wonderful um, beer that he had just pulled off a cask. So mm. if, you were, if you recall, it was an ESB. Uh, I don't recall. Uh, uh, I mean, I didn't recall that until you've mentioned it. So, um, yes, that's f- amazing. Wonderful. Uh, it's far away from me though. <laughs> I know it is a little bit inconvenient, but you know, it's, cl- it's, a take lot, it. it's a lot closer than machine house. It is. It's a lot closer to machine house in Seattle. That's true. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting when we, when we think about our future, uh, conversation and our conversation with Casey, uh, you know, I, I'm surprised. I guess I'm surprised in one way and not surprised in another that despite the fact that breweries, which had large uh, draft footprints uh, taking a massive hit because of COVID, they are doubling down. And I think it's an interesting, you know, as we, even in this first part of this year, when this is not going to be a, a lucrative source of income, they're still really wagering that this is the future of beer. So that's, <laughs> that's curious to me. And of course, which is, which is, um, uh, funny when you think about the way that breweries expanded in like England, for example, and having a bunch of tied pubs, uh, brewery a- 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 associated pubs that they would sort of slowly expand out and send their beer to. So it sounds it's 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 new, but uh, sounds almost ancient. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You and I think so much alike. I was as I was preparing this uh, script, I had the exact same thought and thought I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to do a blog post on the new Tide House movement in. Uh, America. So, <laughs> well, you, yeah. know what, you know what they say, Jeff, simple minds think alike. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got those. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we should pivot now and um, get to our interview with Casey. We're actually recording this before we've talked to him. So we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll come back uh, with Casey Armstrong. All right. We are here uh, with Casey Armstrong, the man behind Road Beers, which is a fascinating new business here in Portland, Oregon. Um, and I, I don't know that there are very many, very many places like it in the country. And it, it is a one of those businesses that grew out of the opportunities COVID presented, uh, or I guess Casey's may explain it as a necessity. <laughs> uh, challenges that came COVID. <laughs> Yeah. So we will uh, hear all about that. But first, hello, Casey, and welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And I'd just say uh, it was a uh, maybe all the above necessity, uh, (laughs) opportunity. uh, Who who else knows, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us? um, So just to just so people know, I'll give a thumbnail sketch of what what road beers is very briefly, and then we'll we'll have you explain how we got there, and then you'll give us a much longer description. So it is basically a direct-to-consumer delivery model, uh, in which you represent a number of different breweries, uh, and mm-hmm. people can order online, and then their beer appears the next day at their house. So that's basically what road beers is. But we want to hear what road beers is much more in depth than basically. So. Tell us how this thing started and how you uh, how you came about the idea. Sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's basically as simple as it is. Um, you order beer and we show up at your door um, the next day. So 
uh, that's kind of the, <clears throat> the gist of it, but it really started uh, kind of as you opened with, like um, I own a, an event space um, here in Northwest Portland where we were really, you know, all of 2019 highlighting different breweries and we were running, you know, between seven and 10 and 14 day pop-ups with, you know, local breweries, uh, out of state breweries, uh, hard to find breweries kind of turning our space, which is just essentially a bar uh, that I built as an event space into their, into an extension of their brand for, uh, you know, between one and two weeks. And then we'd rip it all down, rip all the branding down and redo it. And, and it's basically a rotating bar. So we developed all the relationships over the years. Um, we started that in 2017. And when we got word of the shutdown, it was one of those things that, uh, you know, my background's in brand strategy and brand development. So I was like, you know, Hey, let's have some fun. Um, Let's continue to kind of like talk about beer as function uh, to stay relevant, really, to uh, kind of service our regulars that we've created around the neighborhood, uh, you know, just to allow them to get what they need while they're staying, you know, sheltered at home. And I created Road Beers. So I think we shut down on the, uh, I think our last day at operating as function was like the 14th. I created the brand on the 17th and we launched on the 20th, I think is what the actual timeline is. We're talking, we're talking March here, March, uh, 2020. Yeah. Sorry, March 2020. And um, we did as quickly as we could and operating off a cell phone, just kind of like, hey, you know, here we're road beers and we'll bring you some beer. You can order, you know, prior and pick it up kind of like a bottle shop would. And literally, I think in the first day we ran out all of our beer and um, we had about 17 deliveries and of like, another 13 or 15 pickups um, somewhere around that number. And I was like, okay, uh, I guess this is going to have to get a little more serious now. So uh, we, we kind of, you know, thought of it as a, a relevancy idea, uh, obviously a necessity from like uh, a relevant, you know, to stay relevant, but also to sell beer and continue to support the, the community that I, that I love, which is the brewing community. Um, and it, Turned out it wasn't relevant for a couple of weeks, but now what? We're ten months in, and it's still uh, still something that we're doing, and that people are really appreciative of because they're staying at home because the pandemic is still uh, doing what it's doing. So, yeah, that's the, that's kind of the footnote as to how it started was really just uh, an idea, uh, a fun idea to have some fun in the in the industry, uh, a changing it evolved into a, a changing idea as to how we better service. Uh, our consumers, as well as how we better service the breweries um, that we can work with. So that's yeah. The, and oh, go ahead. No, I'll just say that's the gist of it, really. Like, I mean, I can talk about you know the ins and outs for hours, probably, but that's kind of the the you know the thumbtack uh, version of it. Yeah. So that was when we talked about this earlier. So I interviewed you for a post I did on on the the Beervana website. Um, you described this as phase one, and and you actually have two kind of components here that are complementary and slightly different. Mm-hmm. In phase one, you uh, are the the model here is you described it sort of like a, a tap room that delivers or a, a, a like a bar that delivers. Uh, yeah. So um, you describe this. You buy the beer, is that right? And then what do you who do you buy it from, and where do you what do you do with that beer when you get it? Yeah, so it's exactly right. I basically. Uh, I already had my OLCC license. Like I said, I was running events. Uh, we were open as a bar, you know, probably 250 plus days last year, or, sorry, in 2019. And so I already had my licenses that I needed. I applied for a delivery license just cause. 
um, which the OLCC, you know, thanks to them, they they were fast tracking a lot of a lot of stuff to help. And so that happened on the same day. And essentially, I buy from distributors. I buy directly from breweries that are self-distributing. Uh, it comes into my bar, which is really just acting as an account. And then I have a website, roadbeerspdx.com, that people can come place an order directly from us. Uh, we then deliver that beer. So essentially, just like you said, I have a tap phase one, or now at this point, uh, kind of arm one of my business is um, we're a we're an account where your local bar down the street that also does a delivery service within 15 miles of our location for all stuff that we bought from distributors and breweries. Gotcha. And uh, you, you could conceivably buy any beer that's available in Oregon then for this, this part of the service. Exactly. So yeah, this, this service, um, and we'll get into the kind of what phase two ended up being, I'm sure, but this service is something that I see being, uh, a lower percentage of our business as we evolve, but it will never go away because, you know, realistically I'm, I'm supporting Pacific Northwest breweries so that I can't to do what I want to do. I can't completely get rid of that side of my business because then I can't bring in the boss ramblers out of Bend, which has been super fun to work with Matt Maletta and the guys over at day one distributing with Robbie Rota. Um, you know, I can't necessarily work with them because I can't deliver their beer here as I am doing in phase two. So that side of my business um, from supporting Seattle brewery and Washington breweries in general, uh, Oregon breweries outside of Portland will continue to stay alive. And, you know, we're in the process right now of actually finding a different space because I can't run all of it out of my bar right now because, you know, hopefully soon, knock on wood here, we'll be opening back up to doing what we were doing uh, pre-COVID. So, so yeah. Yeah, that's right. And if you're going to be uh, able to deliver uh, beer from, very many places. You're going to have a storage issue here. Uh, you're going to yeah. have to have a fair amount of beer on hand. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. So uh, the second phase is uh, something that I learned about when I learned about this whole project. When I got a Wayfinder, uh, I'm subscribed to their their email list, and I got a, mm-hmm. a thing that said, buy our how our delivery done through Road Beers, our partner at Road Beers. Um, and that's when I first heard about you. Uh, and this this was I didn't know at the time, but is uh, the second arm or the second phase. So how does how does this piece work? Yeah, this piece is the easiest way to think about this piece is um, we don't do anything from an inventory management, from um, you know stocking the product, from inv- you know any of that. We are essentially just a delivery driver. So. Def, you know, you went on to wayfinder.beer, you say, hey, I want to get a case of their you know, linear ashes that they just launched with structures. And you place your order, you get an, an email that says, great, you know, we'll see you on Thursday. And essentially, then that information goes to me at Road Beers. I then, we compile all the orders that happened on, let's call it Wednesday. We show up to Wayfinder that next morning on Thursday morning. We pick up all the beer from the orders that uh, that have been placed the day before, we grab them, we deliver them. So we are only like the executioner, if you will, uh, the logistics behind getting the beer to the consumer. So as a consumer, you're st- you're having the experience through Wayfinder. They're getting to control what that brand experience looks like. Um, you know, they they get to have all the touch points. The money is going into their bank account. You know, yeah, you know, nothing changes. What changes is the ability for their beer to reach more people and for the consumer to get beer that doesn't always show up at your local bar or your local 
uh, grocery store or at a distributor, et cetera. Uh, we all know that, um, you know, a lot of breweries, they have their taproom only stuff that they don't let leave. And now this is a way that consumers can have that delivered as well. Interesting. Um, so from the consumer's perspective, you go to the website uh, and you just see a bunch of beer that's available uh, there. But from the brewery side, there's a- these actually, th- these two models have a different effect on, on their business, uh, your partner breweries versus the other breweries. Will you describe the difference from the brewery perspective? Yeah. So you're talking about just from the two separate arms of the business, essentially? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, realistically, it's, it, there's, a, there's the wholesale versus the retail is kind of how I would make that as easily digestible as possible. Um, as an account, uh, I'm buying, let's use Wayfinder as an example because they are self-distributed. So that'll be, a, I think, an easy way to kind of conceptualize this. I'm wholesaling and buying from them. So that's the one piece. That's on roadbeerspdx.com. That's them getting their brand out from, a, you know, as they would with any of their other key accounts around the city or around the state or, you know, elsewhere. Um, so that's the wholesale piece of it. As a consumer, you're finding roadbeerspdx.com. You're ordering a Wayfinder beer as well as a Culmination beer, as well as a Little Beast beer, as well as a, you know, uh, Cascade Sour. And we compile that. That's all beer that we've bought from each of those breweries or their distributors. We compile that, we show up at your door. So that's wholesale side of it. Uh, and that's wholesale side of it from a, from a brewery standpoint. So they're selling me wholesale beer, I'm reselling it. From a retail standpoint, which is, as we all know, much more beneficial cost-wise and uh, financially, I should say, for breweries, they're essentially managing their retail. And they are selling beer rather than selling wholesale and losing margins they're selling directly to a consumer at their retail cost. And then I'm coming and picking up the beer the next day to get to their consumer. So you really have these two separate models that really act nicely together. It allows brands and breweries to grow their footprints in local bars, um, restaurants, uh, and grocery, hopefully, you know, once they get there, as well as a direct to consumer approach where they're controlling their margins, where they're controlling all that information and all that's, you know, the dollars that they're making. And I'm essentially just taking a, a delivery fee and a service fee off the top. So it's a lot more financially beneficial, the retail side of it, which we all kind of, I think, agree on, um, because they're selling directly to consumer and they get to control those margins. So that's kind of the two, the two pieces on how I work with a brewery. And I, and, and, I must say that just because I partner with Wayfinder and on the delivery standpoint doesn't mean that I completely stop buying their product. So I have, let's see, I think I have three or four different SKUs from Wayfinder on my road beer side as well that I've purchased from them. So I think there's, it's my duty as you know a business owner in this industry to not just find ways to benefit my business, but also to find ways to benefit um, the, the industry's businesses. And in this case, I'm never going to stop buying Wayfinder because it's just another way for me to support as well as the last thing I'll say about that. I understand that consumers don't always want to shop one brand. And if you're shopping wayfinder.beer and you're expecting delivery from road beers, you would have to like buy some from wayfinder.beer and then go to culmination.com and or culminationbrewing.com and buy some from them. Whereas you can also just go to roadbeerspdx.com and, and shop like you would a grocery store, if you will, from a beer standpoint. So there's right. benefits or pros to both sides of the um, business, both for the consumer and for the um, brewery. And we should give a shout out to the brewery partners that you're working with. Those are Culmination, Little Beast, 
Wayfinder. Is there anyone that I don't know about that you've added? Yeah, we just added two this week. Um, we added uh, Unicorn Brewing, actually. Been working with Zach on that. He's super stoked to have us, you know, very, you know, nano brewery. Um, I'm excited to partner with them and, and again, help service uh, their consumers as well as potentially help them grow. Uh, so we just added Unicorn and we just added Laurelwood, actually. Uh, working, ah. working, working with Andy Schaefer over there. And those both launched um, on Thursday. So Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So we're up to five. We have a couple other irons in the fire. Uh, I think that, you know, we don't want to be pushy. I want this to be something that is mutually beneficial. I want this to be something that breweries see value in. Um, so, yeah, we're doing our best to kind of just like service the people that want to, that are interested in it, either taking delivery off of their hands or adding delivery to their services because not everyone's still doing delivery. Uh, Patrick, I, I've, I've guided <laughs> us through this to try to tee it up so that you can uh, ask your econ questions. Do you have some some questions. Well, I don't know if I have any particular econ questions. What I'm, what I was interested to know is how you see your business lasting through and potentially evolving in a post COVID world. Do you think you're, is this still going to be something consumers demand? Uh, I mean, you know, my bullheadish side says obviously because, (laughs) you know, I don't want to like sell my business out, uh, you know, hopefully in the next three months when everything kind of goes back to quote unquote normal, but no, I'm very uh, confident that, uh, and I said, I think I said this to Jeff in our interview initially, like, I, I believe that consumers are creatures of convenience. Um, mm-hmm. I think that we as individuals look at the best way in which we can, um, you know, I guess, go about our days. And if that means doing what we're doing and then having beer delivered at your door uh, is the way in which you define convenience, then I think that it's going to continue. I yeah. think... I, I just believe that there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a, a change in all of us as we, as the cities and states and country and world really opens back up. There's going to be an initial like change because I think everyone, you know, whether you go out or you don't at all, you, you're establishing some form of cabin fever. But in that same breath, you're establishing some sort of the new norm. And I can't imagine, and I don't, I won't subscribe to the fact that like, once people can go to new seasons again, uh, and they'll dig against them, obviously, but to go to new seasons again to buy their beer, that they're going to completely forget about road beers. And the reason, again, I say that is because you can't find everything that we offer at, at new seasons. Um, yeah. And I agree. I'm inclined to agree that we're learning new things and yeah. about convenience as well. One tricky aspect of your business, I imagine, is that um, is it true that you need to have someone uh, accept the delivery who's um, got an ID and all? Yeah, there's. Um, I'll answer that question carefully. There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, nobody's listening. Yeah, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, no. Um, so. Yes and yes. There, there. We have to, for lack of a better term, we have to prove um, age, right? right. And right. whether that's through an age gate on, you know, like you have the age gates on websites that say you can't view this unless you're 21, right? Or whether that happens in the ordering process, uh, or whether that happens in the delivery process, we have to check that check that box. Right. So I know what question you're thinking is once everyone goes back and isn't at home 24 hours a day. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how does that change our, our business model? And I think that we're already starting to think about that. We're starting, starting to think about again, age gating the right things. Um, you know, adding there's, there's technology out there where you can verify age, not just by clicking a yes button, but providing right. certain information. So 
we will evolve as um, as we need. We will also evolve as the OLCC tightens back up. Obviously, mm-hmm. where I think you're seeing the fruits of the labor of a lot of breweries and restaurants in this industry is because, and you know, the OLCC will be the first people that they send out emails on a weekly basis to to be like, hey, we're still watching, but you know, we're also being a lot more. Um, we're wanting you to succeed. We're not going to put you know things in place to to guarantee failure, if you will, from a business. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, so I think that it's going to get more difficult. It's going to get more, I shouldn't say difficult. There's going to be more challenges um, mm-hmm. across the board, and I'm wildly prepared. Uh, if I'm not prepared now, I have ideas on how I think we can get about it. So, mm-hmm. yes, that will be a challenge. That will be a hurdle that we will continue to uh, to address. I, I'm curious, too, uh, in the ordering habits, are you seeing people that are coming on for specific beers and making smaller orders, or are people doing a, a- kind of habituating themselves to order bigger things, uh, you know, once a week or twice, you know, once yeah. every two or three weeks or whatever. You know, it's a, it's a really good question. Cause I, with, with road beers, like our, you know, let's call it our site with road beers, PDX, we see a lot of like two, three, four, you know, I'd say like our average bucket, if you will, is probably like three, four packs, mm-hmm. you know, which three, four packs in a household is, you know, depending on how you're drinking them. It's maybe lasting a couple nights. Maybe it lasts you a week. Obviously there's changes in a lot of things, but, but we see kind of like three, four packs being our bucket, if you will. When I, now that we're delivering a lot more uh, beer for breweries, you see those, I mean, this, this just is an ode to brand loyalty. I mean, there's cases, people are buying cases of new products there. You know, I think I delivered a Wayfinder delivery or we had it delivered where someone bought four cases and I'm like, (laughs) And, and, you know, I haven't seen their name pop up in the ordering again. And that was probably two weeks ago. Like if they were doing that on a weekly basis, I'd be like, huh, interesting. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, it's, it's a interesting question because I'd say from a road beers perspective, uh, it's more the former. So smaller orders uh, when new things come in versus with the breweries, it's more the latter, which is like larger kind of stock ups, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Uh, you know, going forward, it's going to be uh, post COVID. It's going to be interesting to see how these habits develop and change and mutate and and right. uh, and all that. Yeah. Patrick, do you have anything more before we? Uh... Well, the other question I had was just sort of thinking like big picture. Uh, you know, there's a there's a always a big conundrum for breweries like Wayfinder whether to to sign up with the distributor or whether to self distribute. And it seems like you're providing kind of a third way that might be really appealing to a lot of small new breweries as a way to reach consumers, but not have to like employ drivers and have delivery vans and stuff. And um, do you think that a third wave might be to start um, doing the delivery of uh, kegs to, to bars once we uh, finish or, 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 or that would then you become sort of just like an, a distributor? Yeah, that's, that's when I become a distributor and yeah. um, I'm not interested in that. Right. Uh, mostly. I think that, I come from the supply. Uh, I come from the supplier side, so I was, you know, I've done brand work with uh, Craft Brew Alliance. So Widmer Omission is the two brands I worked on there, and then I went to Pabst, and then I got mm-hmm. into the liquor industry with Hood River Distillers. And I've been on the supplier side. I've worked with a lot of distributors, and they're they're very distributors are very very they're needed. Uh, you yeah. know, I say right now they're needed, and they have their. Um, they have their, you know, they, they they have their space, if you will, and mm-hmm. I think that what we are doing is not necessarily circumventing distributors, and we're just we're no. just kind of making them look at 
their business models. I mean, there's obviously laws in place. The three-tier system is there for a reason, and we're going to continue to follow that. And again, just like distributors, I think the three-tier system is needed and much it has its benefits. But my whole goal in this to what I think you started that with, Patrick, is really to to assist breweries in getting in survive and not just surviving but growing their business without having to sell a lot of people think about this as selling out to a distributor um right right because i've been on those distributor floors i've seen that when you're a you know a larger i won't name any distributors but when you're a larger distributor and you have a hundred different beers in your craft portfolio it becomes a who's on special for me as a distributor to sell mm-hmm. this beer and you it, you lose all sense of control of your brand you lose right. all sense of, uh, of real growth strategy for your brand. And if we can help with that, as well as like selfishly, like I want beer delivered to my house. So I don't want to have to go to the Whole Foods down the street from my house or the local bar. I'll go have a pint here and there, you know, great. But if I want a four pack or a case, I want it delivered to my house. And I think that's just something that, that we want to continue to, to achieve. Yeah. 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 And, and just to be clear, uh, you, uh, a brewery can have their local distributor, and I think Culmination is in this boat, um, but you, so you're just, you're a complement to the local distributor uh, because you're delivering to a group that that distributor doesn't deliver to, which is people in their houses. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So Culmination works through um, Columbia and we're, yeah, we're not, we are essentially just, uh, we're technically considered a delivery for hire service. So mm-hmm. we have nothing to do with distribution in our um in our, you know, in the model that is written out by OLCC. So we're not stepping on any toes. We're not, um, yeah, exactly, Jeff. We're not, it's just, we are establishing ourselves as a, a delivery service for breweries that want to get people their beer at their house and not have to leave. And until like, until somebody comes in and, and does it, like that's already doing distri- distribution to accounts. And I don't even know legally what they can do, but until they decide that they're going to, squash us and do it themselves um we're gonna keep doing it right <laughs> yeah well we'll uh we'll stay tuned on that one I, it, like you said there there are uh this is a this is an emerging uh, uh business model and the olcc doesn't know what to do with it distributors don't know what to do with it breweries are just discovering it so it's you know this is one of those um moments where covid has revealed a seam in the market that we didn't even know existed um so now now everything's adapting itself to this new reality uh which is really why we wanted to have you on here it's such a fascinating business that you have um and i think uh we have listeners all over the country and i hope that some folks out there will uh have seen similar experiences in their hometowns uh and and convey those back to us it will be interesting to see how all of this uh, plays out. Yeah. I've been perusing your website, roadbeerspdx.com, as we've been talking, and it looks fantastic, really user friendly, very easy to navigate, and lots of great beer. So, <laughs> yeah, kudos. Yeah. yeah. We've developed a really great, like, so like I said, some really great relationships um, with, uh, you know, with, with breweries, uh, but also like uh, work, we work a lot with Robbie Road over at Day One, and he, he has a hell of a book. Um, from a Pacific Northwest and beyond. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. We, I, yeah. I mean, you know, Jeff, if you hear from some of your listeners that 
are like, I wish this was in my city, pass that on. Because, you know, we have, we have the, we have the thought process and the idea that we're only scratching the surface here in Portland and in Oregon in general, but with all the goals of at least servicing the Pacific Northwest, going up into Washington as, you know, as we can and as we grow. So the goal is, is not to, um, not to grow out of our, uh, or, or be greedy in our speed to market, if you will, on other markets. But I would love to hear feedback uh, on what we can be doing better or where people want us. And maybe we can, uh, maybe we can give plans on as to how we're going to get there one of these days. Uh huh. All right. Well, that's exciting news. Yeah. Um, Will do. All right. Well, Casey Armstrong of Road Beer, Road Beers here in Portland. Uh, what's the website? The website is roadbeerspdx.com. All right. Check it out if you are at all interested. Uh, whether you're in Portland or not, you can check it out to see what the model looks like. And we really appreciate having you here, Casey. Thanks so much and best of luck to you. Yeah. Thank yeah, you guys for having me. Um, and hope you guys continue to stay happy and healthy. Yeah, you too. Yeah, take care. Thank you. All right. And once again, thank you very much to Casey Armstrong of Road Beers PDX. If you are in the Portland area, you should check them out. Roadbeerspdx.com. It's a cool website. Lots of great beer on there. Indeed. That was uh, such an interesting development uh, that Casey stumbled across, which I got to think there's just no chance that was going to happen if COVID doesn't happen. No, absolutely. It's a, it's a pivot. It'll be interesting to see how it remains, evolves, you know, diminishes after COVID. But uh, I will say that I have done some uh, home delivery orders, but they were direct to uh, particular breweries. And uh, the idea that uh, you could get a few different breweries products uh, delivered to you is um, fantastic. I think it's um, it's a great idea. Uh, I'm I'm I didn't ask him because this occurred to me <laughs> occurred to me after we talked to him. It occurred to me right now. Uh, I wonder the the uh, uh, sort of the, the relative competition he sees from a from a service like Instacart, where someone will go do your shopping for you at a grocery store, but you could also order beer that way as well. So um, I wonder what he thinks about that. But I didn't think to ask him at the time. Right. And, and the one, you know, the one question I think that is out there is how, I think it's a great business model. And I do think he's right that, um, convenience will compel many people to continue, but I do wonder how many people are going to want to continue to, uh, order separately from, you know, different product categories across a wide range. It, It can become kind of convoluted which is why stores exist in the first place yeah although i'll say that as someone who's tried like instacart and tried um and i've also been doing uh i tried instacart and 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 stopped because that didn't go well for me uh and now what i've been doing is curbside pickup from grocery stores we can talk about sort of the economics of all this but one of the things that i found is that um beer is not a great thing to buy for those services because stores are sort of, I imagine this is partly their relationship with distributors when they often just kind of turn over their uh, parts of their cooler to distributors to stock. And so they're not great about putting beers they have on there. Beers they do have on there, they uh, uh, will often not have when you order, you know, when you order them and they're trying to fill your order. And um, and then in my in my case, because I did this yesterday, uh, you might order a beer and get a different beer instead. Um, uh, not because they replaced it intentionally, but because they made a mistake. Um, but this one, by the way, I'm just going to, I'll riff because I want to open a beer and drink. 
Yes. So, I, <laughs> so I this was one is for you to take a break because I was going to go. Yeah. <laughs> so this one was a happy accident, actually. So I was ordering my uh, ecliptic phaser hazy IPA because, as you know, it's kind of my it's kind of my go to post workout uh, beverage where I uh, I infuse it with fresh lemonade. Um, uh, sometimes I'll have it on its own too, but uh, that's listeners why of the pot are well aware of this. Yes, uh, but so instead they accidentally gave me a beer I didn't even know existed. It's Filament Winter IPA, uh, which from Ecliptic from Ecliptic, uh, which is uh, uh, amazing because my favorite winter beer of all time was a beer that John Harris, the Ecliptic. A brewmaster, guru, head, everything. I don't know exactly all the titles he has, but uh, the guy who basically is ecliptic, um, <laughs> uh, he used to brew brew something when he was at uh, Full Sail called Wreck the Halls, which is basically a winter IPA, and it's lovely, and I love it. Uh, I've loved it, and I think actually you can they're still pumping it out once in you know at the right time, but I missed it this year. Um, so I'll be interested to try this. This one is interesting because it's a winter ale, uh, sorry, a winter IPA brewed with tangerine. So oh, very nice. Here, so here we go. So <clears throat> there you have it. So what I was going to say is those those services aren't great for, for little um, niche areas. If you're really like into beer, it's probably not going to do it for you. And the other thing I'll say is kind of getting broadening out and just to, talking about the economics of COVID and post-COVID, particularly in the retail space. Is that I think that there's a lot of you know I'm I'm a little bit skeptical about how much of this stuff is going to persist, but there are some things I think that will have a permanent uh, change uh, because there are a lot of like switching costs that often keep us doing the things we've always done because it's you have to make a big upfront cost to switch to something else, and I'll give sort of online grocery shopping as an example for me you know having to sort of uh, uh, navigate around a giant website with a thousand different grocery store products is a pain because, you know, normally I'll just get to the grocery store with my little list and then I'll kind of think about other things I need and then I'll notice something else. And and then if yeah. they don't have, if they don't have one thing, I'll think, okay, well, I can't make that tonight. So let's think about what I'll make instead. So all that stuff is, is a big, it's a big change. But once you start doing it online, then they start keeping track of what you've bought and they'll suggest those things up front. And, um, and you still have the problem with like out of stock items and stuff. That's not great. So there are always downsides, but it is kind of, I've, I've, I've sort of paid those costs now and now it feels a lot easier for me to do this. Um, and I've gotten more used to it and I can imagine definitely doing this curbside. And I imagine that stores will keep this up. That's the other thing. They've added a whole bunch of new infrastructure. They've got these special little lanes you pull into and they run out with their little carts and, stick it in your trunk and all that. Um, and those kinds of things I think uh, can stick because of exactly these kinds of switching costs uh, uh, that are already prepaid now once COVID goes away. That makes Yeah. Sense. And, and the long time that COVID has been around has really created habits. I mean, for me, it's all habitual. Um, you know, we're, I still, I'm still in the mood of I'll just go down to the grocery store and buy my beer rather than order it. Um, and I often wait too long. Like last night, for example, the beer that I'm drinking, uh, I, uh, you know, we, for this podcast, uh, I had not thought ahead. So I hadn't ordered anything and I had to go to the grocery store to buy the beer that I bought. Mm-hmm. And turns out, I'll tell you what that beer is in a minute because it's happy accident. Uh, but, and I don't think I could have ordered it. Um, but, you know, all these people who are, who have done that, who have made the change and are doing their, their beer ordering, they've already built that habit. And so I think, 
Casey's correct in, in suggesting that he thinks that it'll be a sticky uh, habit. You know, people once started will continue to do it. Yeah. And there's also a kind of another to, 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 to kind of flog the little, you know, <laughs> little uh, uh, beer, ter- uh, sorry, economics terms. Um, I was thinking also sort of how n- network externalities work. Um, network externalities just briefly are just the, um, the benefits you get from consuming a good, the more that others consume it. And so a classic example is that if you were the first person to own a telephone, it didn't do you much good because you couldn't call anybody. But once (laughs) once all your friends and family got telephones, suddenly your telephone was much more valuable. And you Mm -hmm. can say the same kind of story like when, you know, early on with operating systems, when there wasn't a lot of good interoperability, you know, if you were working on a Microsoft machine, um, then it was helpful to work with other people on the same machine. But anyway, so I was thinking of that because if you're if you're wanting to do this online stuff, but this infrastructure isn't there because it hasn't been developed, or if not very many breweries are participating with road beers or those kinds of things, uh, then then your benefit isn't great. But as more and more people use it, and the infrastructure gets better, and they get slicker at this and faster, and uh, and offer more products, then suddenly this becomes more valuable. And so this is a time in which it's for forcing all that other stuff to happen. Um, and I imagine that once that's there, then there's going to be a much more benefit to one, any one individual user doing this kind of thing, these kinds of things. Totally. So tell me your beer. So the beer that I have is from Matchless Brewing of Olympia, Washington. Mm-hmm. And they're a brewery that uh, usually when they come to Portland, the beers that we get are the IPAs, which, you know, that's what you get everywhere. But they make some kick-ass lagers. And I was so excited to see that they had Tamava Sova, which is, uh, I saw the word Tamava and I thought, oh my God, is that a Czech Tamavi? And yes, that's uh, what they uh, have called it. Although I will say in a minute that I think maybe it's not quite that. Uh, (laughs) And Tamava Sova means uh, dark owl and there's a little owl on the label. Mm. Um, And I love Tamavis. Czech dark lagers, sometimes called Chernes. Uh, are, it's one of my very favorite styles in the world, very rarely brewed in America. So super cool to see that. Um, and it's a, it's an excellent beer and I'll, I'll just say it, it more tastes more like a Schwarz beer to me, more like a German Schwarz beer. It's a little bit roastier, uh, and has the body, uh, that I associate with, uh, German brewers, a little bit drier, a little bit thinner, um, than the cakey mm. hearty Czech style, but right. it's still a fantastic beer. And if it had been a Schwarz beer, I would have bought it too, because those are just as rare. And I love those just as much. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can tell you that my beer is fantastic. Uh, I give it a big thumbs up. It is, um, it is a uh, sort of a darker colored, um, it's a little hazy, but it's not intentionally hazy. It's just, uh, not completely bright. Uh, but it's a, more of an amber, darker amber color. So it's got that wintry heft, I suppose, visually. Uh, and, uh, it's a, a very nice IPA. It's got a very uh, nice uh, gentle hint of tangerine, um, but it has that kind of robust spicy hop that kind of I find warming and, um, ah, excuse me, along with um, some citrus uh, hops plus citrus in the tangerine. It's a pretty strong beer. Am I right about that? <laughs> it is a pretty strong beer. Have you had it? I have. Yeah, it's been a while oh. though. Oh, uh, I didn't even know it existed. Uh, 7.2%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't taste like it. I will say it doesn't. Um, I took a few steps like, oh, this is going to be good. I'll be able to have much of this, but maybe not as much. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, but I probably uh, it's winter. It. Yeah. 
it's winter beer, so it's strong. Yeah, beer. it's not quite. It's not quite like the wreck of the hall. It's not quite as sort of spicy and and uh, uh, warming in that sense. But um, uh-huh. it's got a nice a, a nice sort of old school slash new school hoppiness. So it's got some spicy bitter hop back, and then some some bright more citrusy hops on top with some tangerine. So I like it. So uh, to get back to the topic, I I wondered. I, I threw this at you, and I don't know how excited you are about this topic, but um, you know we're talking on Zencaster. We're recording this on Zencaster, which is a, it's, it's like a an internet studio. And if we were not recording a podcast, you and I would probably be on Zoom, um, which existed before COVID started, but nobody used it. Um, mm-hmm. And Casey's project with Road Beers is another example of of things that. There was no barrier to these models existing, but we just hadn't, we just weren't doing them. Well, there was no necessity either. So, yeah. So, I was wondering, you know, how many things in the uh, uh, economy are like that? And what do you foresee as changes? You know, this is going to be a a well over a year long interruption Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of other sectors. And I jotted, I, I texted you. Uh, a few things I, I I mentioned, you know, global supply chains, which for a while looked like they might be interrupted. Mm-hmm. Online shopping and retail, which we've just been talking about. Uh, energy demand, you know, how is this affecting the need for oil shale and fracking versus green stuff? Education, physical <laughs> geography of offices. Are people going back to offices? So just like all these things. And you're <laughs> in the other words, you want me to know how is the world going to be different uh, globally in every category? <laughs> I uh, do. Let, let me try. You're, you're a professor of economics. I, is that is that wrong for me, me to demand that? <laughs> let me try to take it in a few little chunks, and I'll disappoint you and not be Nostradamus. But uh, but I'll give you some of my thoughts. Uh, yeah. And these are just thoughts, by the way. These are not like da- like driven by data, right? This is my as the mind of an economist. I tend to think that uh, we were in equ- we were in an equilibrium before, and that equilibrium. Well, let's take global supply chains for example. Okay, so we were in a glo- uh, global global equilibrium before, and that has been disrupted a bit. There's sort of supply disruptions. There's trade disruptions. All these things that happened with COVID. There was also an administration that was more sort of protectionist in terms of trade regulations as well prior to COVID. And so actually, I think that there's two things that are going to happen post-COVID is I think all of those economic incentives to have a global supply chain rather than do things locally aren't really going to have changed very much. They'll change a little bit and there's a little more risk involved. I think people, uh, firms might price in a little more risk. Like they might think, well, it's a little more expensive to have it coming from China because there is a chance that the supply chain will be disrupted. And so I imagine that companies will do more uh, contingency planning and have have maybe a local supplier in mind or some way to to deal with disruptions a little more robust than they had before. But I actually don't think it's going to have a big impact in in terms of the, the these global supply chains. And I think that's also especially true in the sense that um, uh, I imagine the next admin, the new administration coming in is probably going to be a little less protectionist. And so we'll probably not engage as much in trade wars uh, and make those supply chains a little bit less expensive that way. So I actually think that um, uh, that there isn't going to be a big impact. That's just my my personal opinion, and that's based on the fact that I think that economic forces are strong um, and they are persistent, and those things haven't really changed fundamentally. 
they won't have changed fundamentally once we're back to normal. All right. I, I, I'm walking over here to the door to pick up uh, some UPS. So carry on. Keep, keep oh, talking. Okay. So speaking, of, speaking of supply chains. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Don't worry. I'll just carry on. You just take, take care of your business. Actually, I kind of like this. It's kind of like c- cinema, uh, very, cinema verite. Uh, why don't you make sure you, she knows your address so everybody can everybody knows your address. <laughs> All right. I, I, I took care of that. I'd already gotten one of the slips on the door, so I didn't want to lose out on that package. So thank you, everyone. Sorry. No, this, okay. is, this, is, this is podcasting verite. It is. It is. Yes. Uh, uh, okay. So then the other thing is, though, I do think that consumer habits uh, are likely to change in ways that we've already talked about. But there are other, a couple of other, you know, I've talked about network externalities. I think that these networks uh, are going to be more robust and more valuable. So these, you know, I gave this um, curbside shopping example. I think that's one. I think, you know, um, some of these uh, uh, businesses that can establish themselves, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to forecast the beer, um, uh, the road beers business model. I don't know how that's going to evolve, but uh, there's also learning curves too, which is that there's a lot of things out there that people hadn't really been forced to try. Kind of like how it sort of maybe Uber was slow to catch on and then suddenly enough people were doing it and everyone's like, oh, this is easy. And so you sort of learn that Uber actually is a really good substitute for your traditional cab and so on and so forth. Or maybe I should use Lyft and rather Uber. Um, <clears throat> so I do think that those kinds of things are going to happen. And then there's also, you know, new businesses that are sort of popping up like road beers that are trying to create this new uh, business model. So I do think that the consumer landscape might change a little bit. Um, but I think that that's probably uh, still relatively minor in, in the grand scheme of things. So if I was, for example, a brewery, I wouldn't think that I would need to think of a whole new business model post-COVID than I had in my mind pre-COVID, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. What areas do you think things will change then? Well, I think that the, you mentioned energy. I think energy is going to change uh, a lot because, uh, not because of COVID, but because of the, the realities of uh, global climate change are becoming more and more uh, drastic and, and dire. And I think that um, you've already seen the, the new administration signaling a, uh, a willingness to really combat this. And that's really probably going to mean uh, carbon taxes and pricing carbon. And, and that's going to make energy more expensive. And I imagine there is going to be a bigger pivot to green energy sources. I don't know, you know, that's relevant to brewers because they use a lot of energy um, <clears throat> and that could make it more expensive uh, for sure. So I think that that's, that's a big change. That's not really COVID driven though. That's really global climate change driven, but uh, it's impossible it, it, to ignore now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there, there could be a little bit of a, a COVID uh, linkage there in that um, if, to go to this other, one of these other ones I mentioned, people do uh, commute less, use their office less, because now we've realized that you can do a lot of stuff remotely, um, yeah. We, we, yeah. Might, we might be using less energy that way. So this is fascinating, and this I don't know. I know a lot of people have a lot of opinions about this, about how much uh, the whole work uh, space idea has changed. And I'm, I'm sort of a, I put myself somewhere in the middle. I do think that we're learning. I do think that a lot of firms have been forced to pivot to a distance, you know, to remote uh, uh, meetings and uh, remote working and all of that. And they're sort of been forced to confront it. And it was very easy before just to say, no, we're not, that's not us. Um, and uh, in so doing, they've learned 
the pluses and minuses. And there are both. Um, and I think that the pluses mean that there probably are going to be fewer uh, people returning to group offices than there were before. But there are also a lot of minuses, which I also think that people have um, discovered. And I think that's um, going to put uh, a real limit on how much that happens. So I'd be really surprised if in another couple of years, when hopefully everything this is long behind us, that we're not back to something pretty close to what we had before. But let's just imagine that's, let's say, 20, 20% now, uh, people who were working in a traditional workspace and now work remotely. That's a big change, and that could have a big impact on um, on sort of businesses as usual, particularly for retail businesses like brew pubs, like tap rooms, like restaurants. Uh, uh, it might mean that, for example, all of these places that are really focused on lunch crowds, you know, business lunch crowds are, are, are going to uh, find less... Uh, customers, but it's also also probably true that there's going to be a lot of commercial space that's relatively cheap. And so I would imagine that it's kind of a, um, a potential uh, um, opportunity. And, and, and in our news, we talked about two local breweries that are, are opening a bunch of um, uh, uh, extra sort of um, uh, storefronts, uh, tap rooms locally. And I imagine that that is part of the calculus is that they can probably find retail space really cheaply right now. Um, and so that makes it easier for them to go out and, and find people where they are. And it also makes it easy to go out and, as I say, uh, uh, if, if they're not coming into a central location like downtown and working, then they can start sort of spreading out and uh, offering those same kind of experiences, but more in the, in the outskirts in the suburbs too. It's an, it's an interesting time. Um, I know that economists like to create uh, mathematical models and think about Oh, yes. the, the behavior of the markets in, in really rational terms. Oh, and yes. right now we're in one of these moments where you're, you have to act a little bit like a sociologist and try to figure out what's going to happen as a consequence of these changing patterns of, of human behavior. Is that unnerving uh, as an economist for you to well, try to, to I, Well, that? I think that you have, to, you, have to, you have to be more like a psychologist, which economists have, have, have done a uh, have moved a lot in that direction and starting to get away from just a purely rational model. But I'm going to actually stop and uh, I'm going to turn that around and say I'm going to defend the rational model as a as uh, a really good framework to understand big markets. Like I think that behavioral economics, sort of the psychology aspect of economics, matters a lot in a, in in def and particularly in smaller settings when you talk about individual behaviors and stuff. But if we're talking about big sort of economy-wide market movements, then I still think that as a first approximation, thinking about prices, thinking about incentives, thinking about uh, uh, the way that people respond to those incentives is the first best, the first, the best first take, I guess, in how I'll put it, uh, those issues. So that's why, for example, when I talked about global supply chains, that's exactly my point, which is that those incentives haven't changed. The fact that there's cheap manufacturing available in China that's of pretty high quality, or the fact that there's really cheap, uh, un- skilled labor available in, you know, a place like Vietnam. And so light manufacturing is going to happen there. Those kinds of incentives haven't changed. And, and even if, you know, the, uh, the supply chains got disrupted, people are still in mass pretty predictable. And so I think that that's, you know, that's kind of the mind of an economist and that's kind of how I think. So I don't think I have to pivot too much, but there are ways. And, and, and this is my point about things like learning curves and 
network externalities and switching costs, there are ways in which our own behaviors change those prices, right? right. So now that I've gone to Fred Meyer a number of times and, and done their online shopping and, and curbside delivery, that cost, that cost has gone way down for me. So the next time I do it, it's really much less expensive. And so that's my point is that once we've started seeing those behaviors, that consumer behaviors change, and that actually changes their own prices. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be clear. I hope that makes sense. It does make sense um, when you're when you're confronted with the the question. I think of the the remote working thing is is a really interesting one because there's uh, businesses have two two incentives there, right? Mm-hmm. One incentive is if you do remote, if you allow a remote offices, you you expand radically the the pool of workers you can have. You can get a lot better. Uh, you know, you you can find the best and brightest all over the world. So there's a lot of advantage there. But you also, and, and, and if you have fewer offices, it's a lot cheaper. But then you also have the disadvantage mm-hmm. of not being able to work together. And there are a lot of uh, important reasons why you want to be in the same physical space. So as an economist, you're looking at these two, th- two ways things can go. How do, you, how do you make predictions when you're confronted with something like that? Yeah. Uh, well, both are true. And that's why I was sort of talking about the pluses and minuses of remote working. You know, uh, for firms in which it's hard to monitor and hard to track productivity, then it becomes harder, the more diverse and more sort of uh, um, unobservable are your workers. Um, and I'm using very sort of, I don't know, stark, impersonal terms, but that's kind of the, you know, one of those issues. Uh, people, people respond to incentives that if all of a sudden the cost of, you know, n- not, working very hard is is reduced because you're just at home and no one's watching anyway, um, then you can imagine that there's significant productivity uh, concerns with remote work. Um, and so I think that for a short period of time, you might not see those productivity losses, but I think in, over a long period, you might see those productivity losses more. And then I'm going to turn to something that we know from trade in economics. And economics, one of the, eight, the oldest models of trade, and this isn't a... Um, uh, this is a purely descriptive model. It's just uh, a way to to make sense of the data we get. And it's called the gravity model, and it sounds it, it it's just like it sounds, um, which is if you think about uh, trade flows between two countries, what are the things that determine those flows? And the gravity model takes into account distance, right? Because you know distance matters in terms of gravitational attraction, and size, mass matters in terms of gravitational attraction. And so this sort of the size of the economy and how far away. Uh, are two big predictors of trade flows between countries. And that's really interesting because that model hasn't broken down over the last 20, 30 years, as you might expect, as trade has become less, as as transport has become less expensive, as uh, electronic communication has grown, as it's easier to to deal with people across vast distances. It hasn't really broken down the fact that proximity matters a lot. Um, And I think that's true in in a lot of workplaces as well. I think there's a lot that happens uh, among people who work together physically um, that we might not appreciate as much and that I think that uh, we are learning to appreciate more. Um, you mentioned education as well, and I think that's an issue too. Um, I'm working really hard to try to deliver a good class through a computer, through Zoom, <laughs> but it's not the same pedagogical learning environment as us all together in a class talking together and 
uh, and uh, having a conversation that I'm leading and that I'm sort of adding to information stuff. So I, uh, you know, I, I am a little bit of a skeptic about how effective uh, all of these tools are like zoom mm -hmm. um, to, uh, uh, to making uh, work uh, remote work um, really effective. And I suspect that's why I was saying before, I suspect that we'll end up um, seeing a lot of places going back to uh, the old ways. <laughs> but now uh, there are certain firms, especially in places that are really expensive, like the Bay Area, uh, right. who are now kind of probably think really hard about what people we need around and what people can be distant. Um, and right, so, I so hy that, hybrid models. Yeah, so I expect that actually probably to happen more. Um, in a place like Portland, maybe not quite as much of an incentive. And in a place like in the Midwest, for example, where it's a lot less expensive, then you'd expect maybe that there'd be even less ex uh, incentive there. Well, this is all super fascinating. Um, I, I'm really glad we have you on board because I, I find all this super fascinating. I think probably many people are looking at the world right now and, you know, it's been horrible. COVID's been horrible. And yet, weirdly, there's this weird, you know, these interesting things that are cropping up that um, are changing society. And it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. So, Well, well from a, for a social science researcher, this is like one amazingly fantastic <laughs> natural experiment yeah. there's a, a million papers are going to be written uh, from this uh, this uh, one one year period so yeah yeah and actually we'll learn so much it'll i mean i i don't want to be ghoulish on yet on the other hand it is nice that there are some advantages to this horrible situation yeah i mean as you know because you've worked in social science research as well that you know if on a day-to-day -day basis you don't it's really hard to disentangle uh, mm -hmm. causation from correlation and so uh often we look for these kinds of big events that can that cause a big disruption and then you can sort of see the the changes that occur from it so that's right so, and you can you can really isolate certain variables in a way that you couldn't before yeah, exactly yeah so so i expect that this is going to launch a thousand economist careers just doing covid research so <clears throat> That's very cool, and uh, not not a, not just a few businesses like uh, Road Beers too. Yeah, exactly. Oh, way to way to wrap it up. Thank you. Uh, do we have time? Do we have time for mailbag? I think so. Let's do. Why don't we do one? All right. Uh, and I am going to choose this. Uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with uh, Scott Delone in Pennsylvania. All right. Because uh, we are running. I don't want to run too long. So uh, this is. A fun one. He sent um, an email that starts out, I know how much you love Cascale, and I had to yes. pass this along. And then he sent me a link to an Instagram uh, page, which is uh, Forest and Main Brewing. And this is relevant. I chose this one because it's kind of relevant to everything else we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, they write, we are very proud to premiere Forest and Main at home. As you can't drink, uh, as you can't come to the pub to drink, uh, Cascale, let us bring the Cascale to you. Gemstone, a 3.5% dark mild, is the first offering in the new Bag in a Box program. These uh -huh. boxes with interior bags hold five liters of Cascale for you to enjoy at home. Nice. Uh, I know, right? And then Scott uh, adds, for the record, the next time you make it out to Philly, you must go to Forest and Main. I'm thinking this is the same place. Uh, about 35 minutes outside the city. 
they fully embrace and promote Cascales and always have a milder ESB on for cask consumption. So once again, uh, another creative uh, workaround during COVID times by uh, a clever business. Yeah. So this, by the way, you you it's written here that they're an Ambler, Ambler, Pennsylvania, which kind of rings a bell. So I must must be outside Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia, because that's all I know. Um, uh, but this is the what looks like just like sort of the wine in the box idea, which there's a there's a bag inside full of liquid, and then uh, it's contained inside a box, and it has a little um, uh, a valve, and then you just flows out, and this works because Cascale isn't isn't uh, heavily carbonated, so it's not going to burst the bag or anything. Right, um, and I we we don't have enough information from this Instagram post to know what what they're doing for the the bung and the spile and all that, but um, presu- <laughs> well, presu- presumably something. Well, they've got. I mean, the thing about the bag is you can you can re- uh, make sure there's no air in there, and then as it dispenses, it, the bag just crumples, so it doesn't add air on top. And oh, so imagine, you're right. Right. So I imagine that it keeps uh, pretty uh, fresh. Um, I don't know how long it keeps fresh, but man, if I was in Pennsylvania, I would be definitely trying this. It's very cool, actually. That's an interesting idea. If it if it, it uh, does provide relative freshness for a longer period of time, it's a pretty clever workaround and and doesn't lose yeah. carbonation. You yeah. know, it's actually yeah. And only, I mean, it, it will only work for Cascale. It wouldn't work for a normally carbonated beer, right. uh, but it perfect for Cascale as long as you can fill it and get the air out. Then you're probably in pretty good shape. Yeah. Yeah, and, and 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 not only is it perfect for Cascale, but it solves a problem that Cascale presents, which is um, this this problem of it being uh, so perishable. So possibly you could, I don't know, maybe you put this in the fridge, you can actually drink five liters of it before it goes bad. Yeah, nice. I like it. Pretty, I like yeah, it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, you, hey, Scott. maybe Cascale will make her comeback in COVID. <laughs> right. I know, right? Wouldn't that be amazing? That'd be awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, I I suppose we ought to uh, put a bow on top of this podcast. So a few words going out. Uh, by the way, thank you, uh, Scott DeLone in Pennsylvania for your, uh, your um, uh, mailbag uh, contribution. That's the word I was looking for. So a few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter at beervanapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog and he tweets at Beervana. Uh, Patrick tweets at Beernomics. All right. Well, I'm going to pick up my uh, filament winter IPA from Ecliptic Brewing. And I have my Tamava Sova from Matchless Brewing of uh, Olympia, Washington. Nice. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs> I hit my canvas. That's not good. That's right, what I, I did, too. I'm going to do that. Yeah, see, I had another glass here. I was just dumb. All right. Very, very nice. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.